Once again, Happy New Year. You made it to church. A lot of people didn't, so I know what the next week's sermon is. Um, <laughs> just kidding. Um, it's good, you're, good that you've uh, come today. It's just one service today. We had some people show up for sound check. Uh, I don't know if they came back or not. Um, my neighbors actually showed up for sound check. And, uh, but anyway, that was funny. Um, my name is Derek. I'm the pastor. So if you're new with us, that's who I am. And uh, I'm, I'm here all year. So uh, feel free to uh, come back and get to know us. Um, what we just heard from John's gospel, I just want to sort of get right into that, uh, that Lindsay just read. Those are some of the most compelling words in Scripture about Jesus uh, that the Bible has for us. Those are maybe at the top of, um, of the list of the most compelling words about who Jesus is and was. If you were listening closely, I made Lindsay read that to herself out loud in her lonesome before today multiple times. And she came in this morning and she said, I, now I know why. Because it's a very difficult passage to read because if you were listening, you probably heard or felt this back and forth rhythm in the passage like was, with, was, with, through him, without him, came into being, not came into being, light, darkness, light, darkness, that all may believe and some did not believe and so on and so forth. John masterfully built this passage with a rhythm and a meter that if you're not used to it, it reads very interestingly. It's difficult to get through. It's tiring. And I felt like, uh, or I feel like that for me, um, I have read and heard almost everything out there about that passage. And in that conversation, uh, there are scholars, I love saying that word because <laughs> I long to be one, but there are scholars who say that this passage holds some of the most profound theological teaching on the person and the work of Jesus that anyone has ever written or heard. So if you read through that, you can probably feel that. On the other end, there are people who simply say, I think John was smoking something. This whole in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What is that? And as the passage goes, it's a big hill to climb sort of teach through and understand what's being said. There's no easy way through this one, and it's hard to learn everything that it has to offer in 30 minutes, so I'll do my best to get us there uh, today. But first things first, us Bible types, and again, scholars, who are far ahead of me in their knowledge of the Scriptures, they call these first 18 verses of John's Gospel his prologue, and the whole, it's, it's the intro to the whole story. And so what you have in the prologue are bits and pieces of what's to come. There's a little bit in there about John the Baptist. Of course, the big thing is that Jesus is God in the flesh and so forth. It's a prologue. It, it, it's an invitation. Please understand this. It's an invitation for the reader and the hearer to keep listening. That's the point of a prologue, is to sell you on the rest of the story. Does that make sense? Let me illustrate it to you the best way that I personally know how. We're going to talk about this. Uh, this, is, uh, this was given to me by my youth minister for Christmas. My youth minister. I'm not in the youth group. Our youth pastor, Kyle Marshall. And uh, he gave me this for Christmas. If you can't read it, this is the Beach Boys Pet Sounds record. Any fans? Okay, just a couple. Got to work on that. Uh, this is a great, uh, this is no joke. This wasn't like a gag gift, like, hey, here's a vinyl of the Beach Boys. Like, no, I, this, I'm on board. This is a great album. And um, I like the mythology around the album, too, like how, how Brian Wilson, like, 
he surfaced from like 400 years of seclusion, and they went into the studio and created this masterpiece called Pet Sounds. It's awesome. And um, so I, when he gave me this, I was super excited. Like, I think I posted it on Facebook a few times. Like, look what I got for Christmas from a youth guy. Uh, pay raise coming. All right. And so, but here's the thing. Well, let me just give you a little taste. Let's do some, uh, let's do some uh, a sampling of the stylings of the, of the Beach Boys. First song on the track. Listen up. You know this? That's good, yeah, thank you. Uh, that is uh, track one, side one. In the world of digital music and CDs, side one, side two, that's gone. You guys with me on that? I still, I still come from the, like, there's side one, side two, or side A or B, depending on what you got. Uh, there was this sound email going back and forth between our sound people and all of our tech people in the back, and they, they want to start recording. Uh, they were talking about recording the sermons, and we, we record those, but also the music and whatever. And uh, so I just sort of watched these things go back and forth, and then I finally got in on the tail end of the conversation and said, hey, do you think we could, like, record my CDs to vinyl or my sermons to vinyl? <laughs> and um, somebody answered back, and I said, because I like the idea of my sermon having a B-side. I like that. Like, I like, I like the thought. Um, no, but here's the thing. Like, here's the thing about a record. Like, the, the, the purpose of the first song on the record is to convince you and me to sit down and not jump ahead to the third or fourth song, which is normally the hit song. I don't know if you knew that, but usually song three or four is the radio single. There's science to this. But the first song is there to sort of invite us in to the whole album. It's an invitation to listen to the whole thing. And I know that is a very lame illustration, but I wanted to use my new record as an illustration. (laughs) But please hear it in the same light as John's opening 18 verses. It's simply an invitation for us to keep reading and listening. He's inviting us to hear his account of Jesus, not to jump ahead, but to walk through every moment, every teaching, every healing, every emotion, all the way to the resurrection. That's the point. And John's prologue was written to invite you and me to explore this Jesus, to learn more about him. And there's enough in those 18 verses to keep us from walking away from the controversial statements about Jesus being divine all the way to Jesus being God on earth in the flesh and so on. But if we read it with an open heart and mind, we're drawn in at least a little because it is interesting. And like the opening song on a record, this is John's invitation for us to hear the whole gospel. And again, there's too much in there to work through today, so I'm just going to hit two things. If you're looking at your scriptures or if you're taking notes, I'm just going to talk about verses 1, maybe 2, uh, verses 7, 10, and 14. And here's the two things I want to hit. This is what John is saying in these 18 verses. He's saying a lot of things, but two of the things he's saying are Jesus is God in the flesh. Very simple enough. We'll talk about that. And then number two is that his hope is that you and I would believe that. It's just that simple for him. Notice the first two verses. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. You see how that's, the rhythm is off. 
But it's tied together with this phrase, in the beginning. In the beginning was the word all the way to the end of the verse, in the beginning. So John's opening riff is very familiar, at least for the Jewish community, because the words in the beginning immediately push the Jewish mind uh, back to the opening lines of the Old Testament that say, what? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This is also a big theme with John. There are only three books in the Bible, this is side trivia for you, that have this phrase in the beginning. Genesis, John, and the first John letter in the New Testament. The word beginning for them, for the Jewish community, symbolizes a world before the world was. For them, this is about pre-existence. And only God can pre-exist. Only God was before existence, if that makes sense. So we see the word beginning and we visualize a timeline. But for them, this word reaches back to a place before we measured time. So in one sense, John is writing a kind of new creation story. And its central person will be Jesus, who, as he will show throughout the gospel, brings new creation to the world. But that's another sermon. So we have this in the beginning piece, but then it goes on to the next thing where it says, in the beginning was the what? The word. Now, instead of copying Genesis and saying God, John uses the phrase the word. Now, the word for word is the word logos or logos if you're from the south. It's an explosive literary move on John's part. And this is what we have to sort of come to grips with. I mean, Logos is one of those words that would have hit people from all different angles. In the philosophical world of the Greeks and the Stoics, Logos was like, I hate to dumb it down, but it was like the force. I wanted a picture of Yoda here, but I just didn't do it. (laughs) But that's kind of how they saw it. It was this like unseen force that was moving through throughout creation. And the point of this Logos was that it held everything together. So when the gods created the world, Logos was this driving component in creation. It has wisdom and truth to it, and it has power. The Stoics would ask the question, what is it that holds the stars in the sky? What is it that gives the seas their tides? And their answer was always Logos. That's it. But it wasn't personal. It would be like today when people really don't have a concrete belief system or faith, but they do acknowledge that something's probably out there, that something must have put all this in motion. And though the Logos wasn't personal, it was something to connect with. Like if you could connect with it in some way, finding its truth, then your life would somehow find meaning and purpose. But it wasn't personal. It was just out there. My wife works for uh, Woodward Academy. She's worked there like 15, 16 years. It's uh, the largest independent private school in the nation, which means it's not religiously affiliated. However, they have a chaplain, which is odd. So we go to the football games, and there's always the prayer before the games, but y'all, it is general at best. It is logos. It is dear, let's all stand, dear, state your belief, Uh, And then it just runs through this sort of real generalized, you know, (laughs) go Woodward, um, amen. Now in the Jewish community, they would hear this different. The logos was that which God used to create the world. So again, the Old Testament phrase from Genesis 1-1 at the beginning of John's gospel now has momentum. They understood God's word to have creative power. Psalm 33-6 says, 
By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and the starry hosts uh, by the breath of his mouth. And when we know what John was writing, his gospel, we know that he was writing his gospel to tell the story of Jesus. And when we know that, these opening words become pretty explosive because of where he's going with them. Whether intentionally or providentially or both, which I think is the case. By opening with the Lagos framing, John spoke to various worlds and schools of thought, taking the ideas of what the Lagos was and what it meant to everyone and saying, essentially, please catch this, this Lagos has, has a name, a face, and a story, and I want to share it with you. That's what he's saying. Look at verse 14. It says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who, have, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. If you were here Christmas Eve, we hit this text just a little bit. This whole word became flesh. It takes a long time for John to get there, but near the end of his prologue, he comes out and says it straight away, that the Lagos showed up on earth as Jesus, in Christ. And he does so much in this phrase to paint this picture, using the Greek word for flesh, which is sarx. It's a rough human word. There's no mistaking what the word meant in that culture. God put skin on, basically. It's gross, earthy, dirty. And he walked this world as a living, breathing, and eventually a dying person. To become human was a move of vulnerability on God's part. And there's a message there for us. We just left the Advent season, if you went through that with us, and we, where we celebrated his birth. And what a story. I mean, God came to earth, not in a major production, by the way, but in a borrowed sheep's stall, born to a poor Jewish family, living under the sovereignty of a worldly empire. The most human of experiences is one's birth. And to be a baby is to be completely at the mercy of your parents. We know this now because we have a new baby. The phrase new baby, by the way, is weird. You don't have an old baby. This is our old baby. But a baby cannot keep himself or herself alive. I didn't recognize that with our first son, who's almost 10. I mean, I just wasn't thinking about these things. But now that we have a new baby, uh, I'm watching her differently. And it's like, wow, they just won't survive without you. I was listening to a sermon by Donald Miller a few weeks ago. And he referenced the whole reality of God coming to earth as a baby. And he said, and I quote, when you think about it, it's really a scary thought. Like if they don't feed Jesus, then God dies. So when John says that God became flesh, it was in the fullest sense of the word. All the humanness of our lives was shared and experienced by Jesus. There's also a sense of a shared experience with Christ in the word Flesh, Like when we run through the Gospels, we find that Jesus was going through all sorts of things that we go through as well, like temptation, pain, sorrow, joy, anger, fear, and death. All things that we go through. He doesn't always win. There are times when he was hated. His own people didn't trust him. They didn't believe him. Flesh gives us a picture of the realness to his life. And I've learned that whatever I'm going through, I can always trace something in the Gospels back to a time when Jesus went through the same thing. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us 
in our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way. And I love this last part, just as what we are. So John takes great pains to say he became flesh, and that's a multi-layered in meaning for us. Yes, God came as a person, but he also experienced what it's like to be a person. The next part says, he made his dwelling among us. That translation, by the way, is perfect. The Greek word for dwelling here is skinu, (laughs) which means to live in a tent, which is awesome. God lived in a tent. But it draws the Jewish mind back to the tabernacle, the tent of God's residence among his people. It's a symbol and a reminder of his presence, not his distance. So for John, this was real. We said this a little bit on Christmas Eve as well. He and the other disciples did life with Jesus for a time. They personally saw him do all the things that he did. And they were there when he said the things that he said. So among us for John was deeply personal. That's why he says in verse 14, we have seen his glory. We've seen it. Right? John was saying that his gospel, the one he's inviting us to keep reading, is a firsthand account. He's saying we were there when all of this happened. This is how he begins his letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, there's the phrase again, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at, with our, uh, at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. This is a theme for John. We were there. He was among us. We were with him. But there's a broader message here too. Like when John says he made his dwelling among us, it's a reminder that God is deeply connected to our lives. He's not somewhere else in the distance uh, waiting to be found, but he's here and now. That's the key here. And he's here in the person of Jesus. And for the Greeks, this was upstream for their thinking. Because the gods weren't personal, they didn't really care about you. Not unless you had something to offer them. Unless you could meet their needs. You don't matter. And for the Jewish community, this was John saying that God's promised Messiah that they knew about was Jesus. So he's speaking to two kinds of worlds and schools, lifestyles. The one they had been waiting on had come, is what he's saying. And though they had a difficult time believing that. Notice what he says in verses 10 and 11 in the prologue. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Isn't that such an interesting? They didn't see it. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. So I kind of like how John includes the tension in the story of Jesus in his prologue. It's not all miracles and faith. There's a real sense of struggle and doubt in the story too. And when it says that Jesus came to his own uh, and his own did not recognize him, he was talking about the Jewish community. These were people who knew the scriptures and knew that God had promised this Messiah. In the days of Jesus, the messianic hope among Jewish people was said to be at its highest, meaning people were kind of on edge waiting for God's deliverance. Part of that was just due to the great uh, pressure of oppression and injustice, wanting to be freed from political oppression and slavery, so to speak. It was at its highest, they say. And when he did, 
come, John says essentially that many of those same people didn't believe it. They could not accept it. They weren't on board with it. Partly because Jesus was a totally different kind of king that they had expected. And that's the thing that's at the very center of John's gospel. He wants us to believe the story. He wants us to believe it. Look in verse 7, right in the middle section, he talks about John the Baptist. He says, he came as a witness to testify concerning the light. So John is in place to sort of push people's attention towards Jesus. So that through him, all men might what? Believe. That's the heart of what John is trying to do in the gospel. And as we struggle with some of those same tensions and doubts, it's so easy to read about Jesus and want it to be true. That's not hard. Like, who wouldn't want that to be true? Especially the resurrection part, because it gives us hope. But sometimes there's tension between belief and doubt. Sometimes we're not sure. I was talking to a friend of mine uh, recently about things of faith and belief and so on. And I said, no pastor has grown as much than when he has gone through the experience of saying, I don't think I know what's true anymore. All of us pastor types have sat in the corner of a church building and wondered if we were wrong. All of us. Like Thomas the disciple who spent so much time with Jesus, we too have those moments where we need more proof, more faith. I I was at a conference nine, ten years ago kind of the last time I went to a conference. And uh, I was in a struggling situation. It was tough. And I kind of walked away from that conference saying, if I hear another megachurch pastor get on the stage and say, it's not about the numbers. It's like, I know that it isn't, but really? You're going to lose more people next week than I'll ever have, you know? I mean, like, it, it was driving me crazy. But one guy got up there and said, genuinely, and it has stuck with me ever since. He said, you know what? I've been in ministry a long time. It's like 30 or 35 years. And he said, I, sometimes I just don't know why certain churches struggle for the duration of their life. With good leaders, good people, a good mission. They just never, they never top the hill. And I liked that he said, I just don't have an answer for that. I don't know why God just allows certain situations in life, whether it be church or marriage or work, parenting, just to stay and remain stale. I I don't know. And so we've all been like Thomas, where we, whether in prayer or just reading the scriptures, say, I need more proof, more faith. And John understood this struggle when he wrote, these words, almost as if he were saying, look, I know it's a struggle and a stretch for you. And it was for some of the most faithful people who knew Jesus personally. But keep listening, he's saying. Keep reading. I want to tell you what I saw. And his passion for us is to believe. That's the core hope of his writing. Look at what it says in John 20. This is the very end of his gospel. Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which I would like to know about, by the way which are not recorded in this book. But these, the ones he recorded, are written that you may what? Believe. That's the whole point of John's gospel. 
I wrote all this down so that you will believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's how he began the gospel. In him was life. And that life was the light of men. That's the purpose of the prologue. That's the purpose of the gospel. He invites us to keep reading, to keep learning about Jesus as God in the flesh. And John's hope is that we would see it and believe it. And these opening words are an invitation to keep searching and listening and pursuing all of this until we either come to faith in Jesus or we dismiss it altogether. That's how I wanted to start the year. This sermon has no application, which I'll say again at the end, but it's just an invitation to look at Jesus, to learn, to listen, to join in on a path to see where that takes you. Uh, Let me close with a couple things here. Um, Why not? It's January 1. We'll quote Bono. Uh, It's taken from his, he's got an autobiography or a biography, and it's taken from the book, but um, interviewer says, Christ has his rank among the world's great thinkers, but son of God? Isn't that a little far-fetched? Listen to Bono's response. No. (laughs) Okay, we're done. See you next week. Uh, He said, no, it's not far-fetched to me. Look, the secular response to Christ's story always goes like this. He was a great prophet, obviously a very interesting guy, had a lot to say along the lines of other great prophets, be they Elijah, Muhammad, Buddha, or Confucius. But actually, Christ doesn't allow you that. He doesn't let you off that hook. Christ says, no, I'm saying I am a teacher, but don't call me a teacher. I'm not saying I'm a prophet. I'm saying I'm the Messiah. I'm saying I am God incarnate. And people say, no, no, please, just be a prophet. A prophet we can take. You're a bit eccentric. We had John the Baptist eating locusts and wild honey. We can handle that. But don't mention the M word because you know we're going to have to crucify you. And he goes on, no, no, I know you're expecting me to come back with an army and set you free from these creeps, but I'm actually the Messiah. At this point, everyone starts staring at their shoes and saying, oh my God, he's going to keep saying this. So what you're left with is either that Christ was who he said he was, the Messiah, or a complete nutcase, borrowing from C.S. Lewis. I mean, we're talking nutcase on the level of Charles Manson. I'm not joking here. The idea that the entire course of civilization for over half the globe could have had its fate changed and turned upside down by a nutcase, for me, that's far-fetched. I was reading a lecture uh, by C.S. Lewis given in the late 40s, and um, I was going to post it online for you, but it's very boring. But in it, it's actually a lecture about Shakespeare, particularly about the play Hamlet and how bad of a play he thinks it is. I'm not even on the same par level with that, you know, but it was interesting to read. But in it, this is what he says, and this is just a gem. He said, there's no way that Hamlet could know anything about Shakespeare unless Shakespeare somehow wrote himself into the play. That's how John's gospel opens, that God has written himself into the story. So this sermon has no application. I leave you with nothing to do once you leave. 
But like John's prologue, this sermon is simply an invitation into a journey of faith and belief. Everything I've said this morning will have its conclusion on Easter Sunday, April the 19th. For the next few months, we're just going to talk about Jesus. Fancy that. And for the next seven weeks, we're going to look at story after story of Jesus revealing himself to the world around him, revealing who he was and still is, which is God in the flesh, here and now. Amen? We're going to move into a time of communion and then close with a couple songs. And uh, I'm so glad that you were here today. Um, I hope that it's been encouraging. And as we do every week, um, we take a few minutes to eat the bread and drink the juice as a reminder of uh, Christ's death, his resurrection, and the hope of his return. And so it's a a wonderful um, uh, ancient tradition that we do each and every Sunday. And so I'll pray. And then uh, at that time, you can make your way to one of the four tables, uh, two in the front, two in the back, and, um, and the offering buckets are also uh, on each table where you can obviously put your offering, but also prayer requests and anything else that, um, well, not anything. <laughs> we don't need your receipt from uh, Corner Bakery, but so. Uh, let's, let's pray together. God, thank you so much for today, and thank you for... Um, John's gospel, we just thank you that you inspired him to sit down in his old age and put the story down on paper so that for generations to come, all the way to 2012, we're reading it still and we're wrestling with it. And just the opening explosive line that Jesus is you and was with you and was a creative power Uh, in the very, very beginning and even before the beginning. And as confusing as that is, we find some kind of comfort in that, that Jesus has always been. And that as we uh, just watch his life over the next few weeks and months, I just pray that you do some amazing work uh, in my life and in the lives of everyone in this room and, and those who will return next week. God, be with us as a church as we try and hold up your son, uh, his story, of life and death and his crucifixion and resurrection. God, move us slowly but surely towards the Easter event as we celebrate uh, new creation in you, as we celebrate uh, this whole new beginning for us and give us a heart to grow and to seek. And for those in the room, God, that just have great doubts, I just pray that they find safety here and comfort here, that it's okay. And that we can together wrestle uh, with some of the great depth in your scriptures and help us to encounter uh, your son through the communion today that we remember his life his death and the hope of his return it's in your name that i pray amen